everybody, I'm Amanda, and this is New York's Dark Side. Guys, I'm back, and I'm going to start right out with an apology. This episode took me so much longer than I expected to put together. I've also been a little under the weather, and I feel like that was coming across a bit the last time I recorded, but my voice is really starting to come back to normal, and I am ready to bring you the next episode of this Central Park coverage, The Dark History behind its creation. And if you haven't listened to the first part of this series, I highly, highly recommend you pause here and go back to listen to that one because it really builds the background to what we're going to be discussing today. This series on Central Park, when I first started like putting this together, I thought it was just going to be two parts. But I honestly think I'm going to have to expand it and make it into at least a trilogy. So there's going to be at least one more episode on Central Park after this. We're not even getting to the building and the opening of the park yet. I really just want to focus this episode on the people who lived on the land that would become Central Park. This is what really sparked my interest in covering this to even begin with. I had been cruising around on YouTube looking for dark history around New York State, and I came across a video that was discussing Seneca Village, which is a settlement that was on the property that would eventually become Central Park. You'll hear me discussing the um, residents quite a bit as park dwellers. This was a term that was used in the book that I got a lot of this information from. I actually remembered to put it in the podcast. If you're watching this on video, um, it's here on the table. Um, And that's The Park and the People, A History of Central Park by Roy Roizenzweig and Elizabeth Blackmar. And if you're interested in doing a deep dive in the history of Central Park, I cannot recommend this book enough. It is literally like a textbook. It's pretty great. Um, They did a really great job researching Central Park. There's a ton of information in there, far, far more than I could have even hoped to fit into this podcast. The park dwellers, they lost the most with the creation of Central Park. And it's just truly heartbreaking to hear their story and to consider what they could have been if they had just been allowed to continue to grow and thrive in the communities that they built. This is a story of discrimination, racism, and as we saw in the first part of my coverage on this, elitism. So... We spent a lot of time in the first episode talking about the power players that brought forth the idea of Central Park, and they really pushed to get the legislation passed. They were the wealthy landowners who wanted a park for various reasons, but a big part of it was to improve their land values and have a place for them to promenade their wealth and to get away from what they deemed as unworthy. A lot of the places that they used to promenade had become crowded with lower class citizens. 
The wealthy had been pushing for a different site to become the park. They were enamored with a portion of private land known as Jones Wood. But another group of people pushed for a more central location and the bid for Central Park passed, allotting for 778 acres of lands initially, but this would be expanded further to 843 acres in 1863. And part of the reason that the Jones Wood Bill failed to take that plot of land as Central Park was because it was private property. However, the land designated to become what is now the current home of Central Park, was also mostly private property, housing approximately 1,600 people. And most of these people were immigrants and persons of color. The park dwellers, unfortunately, had not been involved in the decision to use the land that they were living in, and for a fair number of them, they were landowners. The area where the park would be built was in uptown Manhattan in an area deemed unsuitable for dwelling. Just a quick recap on this. In 1852, the Special Committee on Parks had proposed a site between 5th and 8th Avenue and extended from 59th to 106th Street. They stated that the site was chosen because of the irregular topography. It had uneven and rocky surfaces, which would help reduce the per acre purchase price. And uptown Manhattan was less affluent than downtown, unfortunately. And this would play a role in the decisions that were made. If you recall from episode one, the decision for Central Park was made actually by only a few wealthy gentlemen under the guise of wanting to build a park that was for everyone. In uptown Manhattan, there were several orphan asylums, hospitals, old age homes, and lunatic asylums. And this made up about 15% of the population of uptown Manhattan, approximately 9,000 residents. And I mention this because unfortunately, the wealthy in New York City had a habit of trying to push what they thought to be distasteful away from them. And we've touched on that before in other episodes. I'm referring to the poor that the wealthy deemed unsavable, being packed up and sent to penitentiaries and poorhouses, as well as all the garbage from the city being packed up and sent to Staten Island's Fresh Kills Landfill. The 1800s were wild. And I like to think that we've grown some from that, but in my honest opinion, we still have a long way to go. And anyway, that's a rabbit hole that I'm not even going to go down today. Moving on, the landowners uptown tended to be of a bit more middle class with a sprinkling of some wealthy in there. The Uptown landowners saw the park as an opportunity to screen out residents that were poor, as well as to keep them from building their associated trades and businesses in the area, further improving their um, land values. And this was an early form of zoning and exactly what the wealthy landowners were hoping to do with the Jones Wood Bill. Again, this is increasing their land values. If the park was approved, This would also be a means to remove the existing poor population to renew the area. So the people in the west side of Upper Manhattan, they ended up advocating for a park where the largest concentration of poor uptown residents were. 
And when you look at how the park dwellers were described in historical and contemporary accounts, they are largely either un- or misrepresented. They are sometimes described as being a debased population of savages. In the public reports and in transcripts of legislative discussions, there are only indirect hints that the park dwellers existed at all on the land proposed for the park. It's insulting and it's degrading. They are also sparingly discussed in the media. The book, The Park and the People, discusses one such account that was released on March 5th, 1856, and this was published in The Times, where the park dwellers were described as, quote, principally Irish families, end quote, living in, quote, rickety little one-story shanties inhabited by four or five persons, not including the pigs and the goats, end quote. A second account discussed in the book was an article in the Evening Post where the author wrote that the newly established Central Park Police would have artist duties since the park was the, quote, scene of plunder and depredations, end quote, quote, the headquarters of vagabonds and scoundrels of every description, end quote, and the location of, quote, gambling dens, the lowest type of drinking houses, and houses of every species of rascality, end quote. And I have to laugh at that a little bit. Every species of rascality, it's just very 1800s way of describing things. And it makes me giggle a little more because the definition of a rascal, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is a mischievous or cheeky person especially a child or man, and this term is typically used in an affectionate way. But they're describing the park dwellers in this manner, so they're not using it in its proper term. They're painting them in a negative light to help buffer their case to get them out of there for their own gain. Another charge that was thrown out towards the park dwellers was that, that was uh, largely untrue, was that the park dwellers had stolen the land that they lived on. And they were living on it as squatters. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. As you're going to see here very, very soon, that is not accurate. So what is an accurate depiction of the people who dwelled on the site of the future Central Park? I'm so glad you asked. There were approximately 1,600 people living on the land proposed as a future Central Park. More than 90% of them were foreign-born. Most of them were Irish, German, or persons of color. And more than two-thirds of the adult population worked as laborers, they were gardeners, they were domestic servants, and other unskilled or uh, other service jobs. The rest tended to work in other skilled trades such as tailors, carpenters, and masons. And so some of them, approximately 1 in 10, were fortunate enough to run a small business such as a grocery store or a butcher shop. Between 82nd and 88th Street and 7th and 8th Avenue was the largest and most densely settled of the park settlements. And this is what was known as Seneca Village. A farmer and his wife, John and Elizabeth Whitehead, decided to parcel off their farmland and began to sell. 
1825, a 25-year-old African-American man who worked as a boot black bought three lots of the land for a total of $125, which would be $3,811.06 in 2023. On the same day, another African-American laborer who was also a trustee of the African Methodist Episcopal AME Zion Church, uh, which was the wealthiest and largest church of persons of color in New York City, potentially even the United States in the 1820s, also came and he purchased land from the Whiteheads and would buy 12 lots for $578, which would equate to $17,622.34 in 2023. The AME Zion Church would also come and they would buy six lots from the Whiteheads. And over the next three years, more church leaders would also come and they would buy lots and free people of color began to build a community here. Another settlement near here was on York Hill, which was an elevation between 6th and 7th Avenues and 79th and 86th Street. And that was almost precisely in the middle of the future Central Park. A lot of this land was owned by New York State and was where the building of the first reservoir was in the late 1830s and 1840s, which ended up disrupting the community of York Hill. So in 1838, New York acquired the seven-acre York Hill tract as a receiving basin for the new Croton water system. And some families ended up being displaced from their homes in the York Hill tract, and they would move um, down to join those that had begun to settle in the Whitehead tract. And 10 more houses were added to that Whitehead tract between 1835 and 1839. Again, this area then starts to continue to build and grow and becomes known as Seneca Village. And by the 1840s, Seneca Village was home to more than 100 people, doubling its population. The composition also began to change, and by 1855, the population would grow to at least 264 people, Approximately 30% of them were Irish Americans. So among the earliest Irish residents to the Seneca Village area was its most famous native. In 1842, Sarah Plunkett, wife of Irish immigrant laborer Pat Plunkett, gave birth to twin sons, one of whom grew up to be the celebrated West Tammany Hall boss, George Washington Plunkett. Plunkett! He's an interesting character. We're going to talk a little bit about him here in a minute. In 1846, the Crocker family, including three-year-old Richard, fled famine-ridden Ireland and took up residence, according to one biographer, quote, in a dilapidated building which is now in the western portion of Central Park, end quote. Young Richard's father plied his trade. He was not like a professionally trained veterinarian, but he knew it enough about horses and cows and pigs to start to be like a veterinary surgeon, and he would help take care of people's livestock. And Richard Crocker, his son, would also grow up to be a Tammany Hall boss, but his reputation was one of corruption and ruthlessness. And let's be honest, I'm now seven episodes in, and I usually find myself going down a rabbit hole somewhere in the episode. So today's rabbit hole 
includes George Washington Plunkett and Richard Crocker. So we're going to talk about them. And we're going to start with George Washington Plunkett. And he started from very humble beginnings. His first job was a cart driver, and then he took a job as a butcher's boy and eventually was able to start his own business as a butcher himself. Plunkett decided that he wanted to be in politics, so he started his own political campaign by being very boots on the ground. He would meet with people and persuade them to vote for him. Plunkett felt like having a college education or being able to speak very eloquently did not necessarily make someone a good politician. He felt to be a politician that you have to have what he called marketable goods. And those marketable goods, he said, were people willing to vote for you. And he describes starting out his political campaign by going to his cousin Tommy and asking for his vote first and then some of his friends. And once he had some people that said they would vote for him, he started the George Washington Plunkett Association. And he said that at this point, the district leaders started to view him as having some power. When he decided that he was ready to try to take a seat as assemblyman, he ended up with three different districts offering him a nomination just because he hinted at wanting to be an assemblyman and he had grown so much viewed power at that point. So in 1870, Plunkett, you know, starting from very humble roots, ended up having the position of assemblyman, alderman, police magistrate, and county supervisor all at the same time. And he drew three different salaries all at once. You know, he really came up high in the world at this point. Uh, He didn't, like I said, he's kind of a character. He actually didn't have an office. He would sit at the county courthouse boot black stand And that's where he would see his constituents and he would conduct his business transactions just sitting on the boot black stand. He became very wealthy from his politics, practicing what he called honest graft. Plunkett's view of honest graft was being very aware of what the constituents and the city would need. And he would basically take advantage of that for his own gain as well. So he would purchase land and he would purchase goods for projects that he thought would be good for his stakeholders, and then he would resell them at an inflated price to complete the project, and that's how he gained his wealth. He made his business in real estate, contracting, transportation, and everything else that he could think of to, to make money. And this is generally referred to as machine politics today. He felt that dishonest graft would be buying the land and then using influence to build projects on it without financial gain. Some of the projects that he benefited from and would come to include some of the outlying parks in New York City, the Harlem River Speedway, the Washington Bridge, the 155th Street Viaduct, the grading of 8th Avenue north of 57th Street, additions to the Museum of Natural History and the West, the West Side Court and more. In my research for this episode, I did find a book called Plunkett of Tammany Hall, and it has a series of very just plain talks and his political um, philosophy. I'm going to link that in the show notes. It's a very interesting read from a man with a very interesting philosophy. That's where I'm going to end with Mr. Plunkett here. 
Richard Crocker, on the other hand, seemed to have a very different path and philosophy around politics than Plunkett. Crocker became an apprentice machinist at the Harlem Railroad after dropping out of school around the age of 12 or 13. And shortly after that, he became a member of the Fourth Avenue Tunnel Gang, which was a street gang attacking Teamsters and workers from around the Harlem Lines Freight Depot. And he would eventually become the leader of the Tunnel Street Gang. He would go on to become an engineer at one of the volunteer fire departments in 1863. And one day at a boxing match uh, where Crocker knocked out all of his opponent's teeth, his, his opponent's name was Dick Lynch, he was noticed by a man named James O'Brien, who was an associate at Tammany Hall. And this is when Crocker became a member of Tammany Hall and became involved in politics. Throughout the remainder of the 1860s, Crocker was known as being a repeat voter. He would just go to the polls and he would cast multiple votes all at once. He served as an alderman from 1868 to 1870 and then as coroner of New York County from 1873 to 1876, which is a little bit scary, but it's 1800s. You didn't really need any medical training to be a coroner, apparently. Um Uh, In 1874, on Election Day, he got into a fight with a man named John McKenna, uh, who was a lieutenant of James O'Brien, the guy who brought him to Tammany Hall. And John McKenna was the head, apparently, of a rival political group. McKenna ended up dying in the fight with Crocker, and Crocker was charged with murder. So now we have some additional true crime stuff in here. John Kelly, known rather ironically as Honest John, was a Tammany Hall boss at the time, and he came to Crocker's trial, and the jury ended up being undecided. It was a hung jury on Crocker's guilt, so he was freed. An interesting side note on Honest John, if you are a Dropkick Murphys fan like I am, the song Boys on the Docks was written in his memory as he was very popular among the Irish and Catholic Catholic immigrants. He was a staunch defender of their interests through his political actions. When John Kelly retired, he passed control to Richard Crocker. And as head of Tammany Hall, Crocker would receive money from bribes from the owners of brothels, saloons, and illegal gambling dens. He also became a partner in a real estate company with another man named Peter Mayer, where he made a substantial amount of money from sales under the control of the city through city judges. Crocker would attempt to use his influence to take advantage in other situations that would directly benefit him through the shares that he held in companies. So in 1899, Crocker tried to have compressed air pipes attached to the elevated railways of the Manhattan Elevated Railroad Company, which was refused by the owner of the company. He didn't want to do that. Crocker had shares in the New York Auto Truck Company, which would have benefited from the arrangement and increased Crocker's wealth. So due to the refusal, Crocker used his influence in Tammany Hall to create new city laws, which created two requirements for the company, for them to have drip pans under new structures in Manhattan at every street crossing, and that the trains had to run every five minutes, and if they didn't, there was a $100 fee for every violation. Crocker also had a lot of shares in the American Ice Company, and in 1900, the Ice Trust 
scandal occurred. So the ice trust scandal, uh, apparently the American Ice Company attempted to double the cost of ice in the city, which would have been catastrophic for the city's poor. There was no refrigeration at this time, and they depended on the ice to be able to keep their items like their milk and their medicines and their other food sources cold. And if the price doubled, the poor would no longer be able to afford the ice. And American Ice had a monopoly on the product in the city. So this um, move actually ended up being reversed, and it ruined the political career of Robert Anderson Van Wyck, the mayor of New York City at the time. He had been put into office by Tammany Hall, and Crocker's political career also ended shortly after this, and he moved back to Ireland in 1905, where he would remain until his death. Okay, I'm going to come out of the rabbit hole. I know that tangent probably like had practically nothing to do with the topic of this episode other than both Plunkett and Crocker, you know, lived at Central Park for a time. But I just wanted to include their stories because they both started from a place that was viewed so negatively and they would go on to become wealthy and successful, though I question the means of both individuals. But the point I'm trying to make here is these were people living in the the park And, you know, a lot of the people were not as wealthy or influential as Crocker and Plunkett would come to be, but they ended up having opportunities stolen from them. And it's just very, very heartbreaking and tragic. Um, One thing that just truly bothered me was the level of contempt for the residents in the area that would become Central Park. And this level of contempt was aimed at everybody. It was not just the persons of color, but also equally at the white population because they were cohabitating in the same area. There was a man, John Punette Peters. He was a missionary to Seneca Village residents from St. Michael's Episcopal Church and was very vocal about the commingling of the white and black population and fears regarding them forming marriages and intimate relations with each other or for them um, creating united organizations. John Punette Peters would describe the park as a, quote, wilderness, end quote, in the 1840s, stating that, quote, this waste, end quote, contains, quote, many families of colored people with whom consorted and in many cases amalgamated, debased, and outcast whites. Many of the inhabitants of this village have no regular occupation, finding it easy to replenish their stock of fuel from driftwood from the river and supply their tables from the same source with fish, end quote. Now, we've come to know that this is not at all true. And before I go on, I just need to throw one more side note in because this is who I am. John Punette Peters had a son also named John Punette Peters, who would become a chemist. And he would co-author a book in 1932 titled Quantitative Clinical Chemistry with a man named Donald Van Slyke. And this would establish the discipline of clinical chemistry. So again, sorry, I can't help myself. I like to find these random things and I have to throw them in there because knowledge is power. Okay. Anyway, back to Seneca Village. The residents were not at all a transient population of wretched people. Three quarters of the residents of Seneca Village 
who had purchased land from the Whiteheads, as well as those that had moved from York Hill and were paying taxes in the 1840s, or either they or their descendants were still living in the area in 1855. Virtually every family consisting of persons of color living in Seneca Village in 1850 were still there in 1855. And this is significant when you compare it to the residents of cities such as Boston, where their population, like 40% of their population had moved when looking at those same five years. And many other cities in the United States at this time had high rates of population mobility. And in this period, persons of color had significantly less residential stability than others. The homes in Seneca Village were commonly described as shanties, small one-story dwellings of unprofessional construction. And while many of the homes, they were crowded, their homes often actually were of much better living condition than the thousands of impoverished immigrant and persons of colors living in downtown New York City who were living in cellars, they were living in tenement buildings and other circumstances. You know, the, the people of Central Park had outdoor space as opposed to the crowded conditions in the city. The other common belief about these residents were that they were unemployed, and this is also incorrect. Virtually all the residents were employed in service trades, they were laborers, and they were earning perhaps a dollar a day, which would equate to 34.87 in 2023. The women and children, they would try to help supplement the earnings of the household by working as domestics and laundresses. The women would also sew and try to help scavenge for items such as food, clothing, fuel, and other items that they could use either at home or trade for other items that were needed. One of the most important things about Seneca Village was the uniqueness of this period of time with the land ownership for the residents of color. Throughout the city, there were very few landowners of color due to the multiple barriers, which included limited financial resources. There was a law in New York State that prohibited black inheritance of property until 1809. There were other informal bars that prevented land from being sold to persons of color. And the cost of property in downtown Manhattan was higher than many could afford. In the 1850 census, there were only 71 property owners of color. By 1860, that had only increased to 85. And the fact that the Whiteheads had sold land to persons of color and that it was cheap enough for them to purchase was a unique opportunity. More than half of the households in Seneca Village were persons of color, where they had a rate of property ownership five times greater than other New Yorkers as a whole. And I truly just keep going back to this, but I truly wonder what amazing opportunities these residents would have had if they had been allowed to remain where they were and continue to grow upon what they started because they had the stability in the property ownership. They were able to start building their own community institutions. Seneca Village ended up having three churches. Two were African-American Methodist churches. We talked about AME Zion, um, African Unit, African Union was another one, 
And then All Angels, which was a racially mixed Episcopal church, that was an affiliate of St. Michael. So we'll talk a little bit about those. African Union Church contained Colored School Number 3, which was set up in the 1840s. And this was one of only a few schools for persons of color in the city. So there was even a school there for them to try to improve their lives. St. Michael's at Broadway and 99th Street is still there. And they started All Angels as a mission to help the poor residents of the park. There was a white policeman living in Seneca Village named William Evers. And this is where the mission offered Sunday school and then services out of his house. In 1848, Thomas Peters, he was a reverend of St. Michael's. He expanded on the missionary work and he arranged for the church to be built on West 84th Street by raising subscriptions from wealthy white parishioners of St. Michael's and from other philanthropic New Yorkers, such as Robert Minturn. Remember him from the first episode? So the parishioners for All Angels were a mixture of persons of color as well as Irish and German settlers from within a mile radius of the church. Having property ownership also gave the residents the opportunity to vote which was something that was difficult for people of color in New York due to the requirements. They had to have a $250 freehold estate and have lived in the state for three years in order to be able to vote. In 1845, out of the 13,000 residents of New York that were persons of color, only 91 of them had the franchise to vote, and that number would only increase slightly, so it was still under 100 10 years later in 1855. 10 of those eligible to vote were residents of Seneca Village. And we're going to go a little bit outside Seneca Village now, but still within the boundaries of the park, there were other um, park dweller communities consisting of immigrant populations. So one was in the southeast corner, consisting of 14 households, mostly of Irish immigrants. This settlement had been dubbed Pigtown by the Journal of Commerce, a larger settlement a little further north between 68th and 72nd Street and between 7th and 8th Avenues was also about two-thirds Irish immigrants. The immigrant populations were not quite as fortunate as Seneca Village residents in being able to build up the same sort of institutions, but they would join in other established institutions within the local communities. They were, however, able to grow food and keep livestock such as hogs and goats, like they had in Ireland to help supplement their wages. German immigrants also lived alongside the Irish in these areas, but they kind of maintained their own settlements. They tended to be more dependent on the land um, for their needs than the Irish or the residents of Seneca Village. Some of the German gardeners were able to prosper pretty modestly from their skills. One such person was a music teacher born in Germany named Jupiter Zeus K. Hesser. He began gardening on a patch of seven lots near 7th Avenue and 100th Street in approximately 1852, which he named Jupiterville. In 1855, he had built the property up to where he had a two-story home with a cellar, a well, a sewer, fenced-in gardens, a barn, a chicken coop, and a goat stable. Another gardener who was a German immigrant named Henry Ellerman 
had a lot of eight acres and would produce $2,000 worth of crops a year, which would convert to $77,393.85 in 2023. There were other institutions in this area as well. In the northeast corner of the park, there was an area that there was an area with likely the longest continuous settlement. In the 1750s, a tavern had been built on a hill in the vicinity of 105th Street and 5th Avenue, and this tavern would pass to the McGowan family. And this area would come to be known as McGowan Pass due to the Kingsbridge Road passing through some rocky outcroppings. And during the Revolutionary War, Hessian mercenaries would come and occupy this area, and in 1814, 1,600 militiamen would guard the area against a threatened British invasion. In 1847, with the purchase of a dilapidated frame house near the now-abandoned tavern, the Sisters of Charity of New York would establish their religious community on what they would call Mount St. Vincent. By the mid-1850s, their convent with 70 sisters, half of them were Irish-born, 11 Irish female servants, and 9 Irish male employees, encompassed several substantial buildings, including a laundry, a large brick chapel, a boarding academy for 200 young ladies, and a free school for 50 or 60 children in the surrounding area. So they had another school here. There was a false belief that the park dwellers were constantly engaged in illegal activity and that they were also squatting on the land, which we've already come to know through all of this is not at all true. Most of the documented evidence of the crimes of the park dwellers were from people who just didn't understand the way of life of the park dwellers, who were not at all sympathetic of their struggles. The press at the time would accuse the dwellers of theft repeatedly, but often what was documented was the park dwellers moving their own property from one area to another. I mentioned earlier the park dwellers, they were resilient, and they would often supplement their diets and needs by scavenging for food, fuel, clothing, and other items they could trade. And this could sometimes cross the line into theft, but not to the extent as it was publicized. Some Irish widows may have also operated liquor outlets that may have been illegal to help support themselves, but they're widows. They need to be able to survive. And unfortunately, like, they weren't getting any help. They were also having, like, dance houses being operated. They would end up being labeled as disorderly. And they had been operating for many years with no issues. But then when Central Park became a thing, there was a police force that was established. And this is when that started to be a problem. And in regard to illegal squatting, I've mentioned already that about one-fifth of the residents owned property, and there was also a higher rate of property ownership in this area than elsewhere in the city. Many others had formal or informal arrangements with the landowners, which allowed them to use and live on the land. So an example pulled from the book, The Park and the People, quote, in the 1840s, for example, landowners Abraham Higby allowed Nicholas Ray and John Donnelly to settle their families and grow corn, potatoes, and other vegetables on his land in return for their clearing it of brush. After the 1840s, Donnelly apparently began to pay cash rent of $25 per year. 
but the landlord's agent did not always come to make the annual collection. So he couldn't pay it because no one came to collect it. And perhaps because the sum seemed so small to him, Donnelly, meanwhile, was collecting rents from subtenants on the or subtenants on the same land. And one of those residents was widow Mary O'Donnell, who had to enlist the help of a local policeman to locate the current landlord so that she could pay her rent. Like, that's an honest person. That's not a squatter. You don't, like, squatters don't go to the police and say, hey, hey, help me find who I need to pay my rent to. So when they found him, he was willing to accept whatever cash she offered as that year's rent. It's the 1800s. It's a little bit harder to probably track things. You know, you can't just jump on your phone and Google things back then. Um, But at this point, we've established an understanding of the people who dwelled on the land that would become Central Park. So now we're going to start talking a little bit about the eviction of these people from their homes and communities, which would begin when the Commission of Estimate finally issued its Central Park report in the fall of 1855. Again, The book I've used, the majority of this information comes from The Park and the People. It has a thorough overview on the debate between the landowners and those involved in the decision-making of the transfer of the land. It also details cases in sales and transfer of property in the few years prior to the 1855 report being released in anticipation of the park. There were a lot of people trying to buy up a bunch of land to try to make a a huge profit from this park being built. And I'm not going to go into all of that in this episode. I really want to keep this focused on the park dwellers. There were pleas from the people of the park for them to be able to keep their land where they had so much of their lives and their livelihoods invested. And one of those pleas came from Jupiter Zeus Hesser, who we talked about a little bit ago, who outlined the work that he had done to improve Jupiterville that he would not get back. He spent years of his life trying to improve the land so that he could live on it. And he was just starting to like reap the rewards of his hard work. But he also knew that there were other park dwellers, less articulate and less informed than himself. So he filed a plea stating a great number of poor families who worked a number of years on these lots, squatters and lease ground, will be entirely ruined when they must give up their cultivated land and move away without compensation. Please have mercy on the poor. Then the Lord will have mercy on you. His plea was sent on a postscript and it was filed away, marked as too late, even though it had come within six weeks of the report being released. The people of Seneca Village and the surrounding settlements lost more than their homes. They lost their communities. They lost their livelihoods. In the fall of 1857, AME, Zion Church, the African Union Church, and Colored School Number 3 were completely gone without a trace. All Angels Church was able to move a few blocks west of the park. However, the previous congregation had all been scattered, and the new building had a completely new congregation with only one person of which who had been from the previous congregation. Everybody else had scattered all around. There would be reminders of Seneca Village that would crop up later, but the same negative sentiment about the park dwellers would continue. In 1871, laborers working on the park 
We're working on building a gate at 85th Street and 8th Avenue. And when they were digging up some of the trees, they found a coffin of a young person of color. Almost 50 years later, in the same area, a park gardener named Gilhuli was working in the same area and digging up things. And he discovered a human skull and eventually ended up uncovering an entire cemetery. The New Yorker described this as, quote, filled with the bones of tramps and squatters who lived in the park a hundred or so years ago, end quote. In 1859, the park commission took over the buildings at the convent and schools of Sisters of Charity to use as offices. But when the Civil War broke out, the sisters were able to return temporarily to their buildings and would run a hospital for the military in their old buildings. After the war, a restaurant opened where the hospital was and a statuary gallery opened in the chapel, but these were destroyed in a fire in 1881. Some park dwellers and business owners were fortunate enough to be able to move their businesses and their livelihoods elsewhere. However, most of the park dwellers who had been living in the land on informal leasing agreements they received no monetary allowance for the work and improvements they had done to cultivate and improve the land. And by 1857, the dwellers had quietly and peacefully left their homes and left Central Park. And this is where I'm going to end part two. In the third part of this series, we're going to talk about the design contest, the building of the park. And if you thought the opening of the park starts out the way that it was promised, remember it was promised to be a park for all to enjoy, rich, poor alike, you would be unfortunately wrong. I mean, we're still struggling with equality in 2023. So, I mean, 1850s, it's way worse back then. Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to help support me in keeping this going by leaving a rating or a review to help others find us. You can also find and follow the show on New York's Dark Side Podcast Facebook page, as well as Twitter and Instagram at NYDarkSidePod. You can send me an email to connect with me at NYDarkSidePodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our website, nydarksidepodcast.com, where you can find all the source material I use for this episode, as well as more. I hope you keep listening. And most of all, I hope you stay curious.